Well, Sherlock Holmes has this incredible ability to observe a scene and come up with all kinds of deductions for figuring out who did what. So in our series, Sleuth, we're using the same type of techniques so that we can dive into a passage of the Bible. A lot of people say, well, the Bible's irrelevant. I don't know how to make it relevant in my life. I wish it was. We don't want to teach that way in the sermon later, but we actually want to tell you the technique for beginning to open the Bible for yourself and begin to make observations and to see what it means to you and then ultimately how to apply it to your life. The process we're using is called observation, interpretation, and application. Hey, Chad, where's the case at this week? Uh, The case this week is in Sardis. We're again in Turkey. And because you enjoyed it so much last week, we're going to stay again in the book of Revelation. Fantastic. In fact, let me show you in Revelation, we're going to jump to chapter 3 this week. And I want to show you just some of the insights that we're going to dig into. And, and again, we gave uh, Watson, my friend Peter's playing Watson, uh, going to give him a study Bible so we can dig into the Bible and find some of these insights ourselves. So look at some of these insights. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you're really dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. Some of you living in Sardis have not defiled your garments. That's really key. However, if you overcome, you'll be clothed in white garments. So already you can see so many mysteries to unravel, so much great stuff to unpack. Are you getting excited about it? Hold up, Chad. This is really difficult to understand. You wonder why none of us here are reading our Bible? Well, again, if you have a study Bible, it's going to give a lot of the notes I'm about to explain or share so you can make these observations yourself. Let's just take four words today. Exhibit A. We're going to look at the word, you say that you're alive, you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. Now, in Sardis, this is very key for several reasons. If you remember last week, we saw a temple to Artemis. Remember Artemis? Mm -hmm. This actually temple um, in Artemis uh, is actually in Sardis because the one in uh, Ephesus had been destroyed. So, again, in this culture, there is a a thought on marriage, there's a thought on masculinity that it just, you know, masculinity got pushed down, men were not important, marriage was about dominating one another. This was going on here in Sardis as well. However, if you see that mountaintop, you'll also see that there are some ruins here. These ruins are of a polis. You remember um, the, the Nicolaitans last week? The middle word was polis, where we get the word city. This city's been destroyed. So check your study Bible. That's what you can do as well at home. Um, what year was the polis in Sardis, the city destroyed? It uh, looks like here it says that it was destroyed in a, uh, 17 AD by a major earthquake. That's right. So 17 AD, there's a major earthquake that totally destroys the city. This is just one of the pieces of the city. But if you look to the right, over by the mountain, they had built their tombs. And the Greeks didn't just have tombs. They had cities of tombs. In fact, do you know what a, a Greek city, tomb, or gravestone is called? Let's see, um, so city is polis, like you said, and then um, I believe necro is dead in the Greek, so a necropolis. Yes, a necropolis. But rather than just a few tombstones here and there, it was a city. So here's a, a picture of a necropolis. It would have been right here where you see the, uh, the town now. That was the necropolis. The picture up to the top right, this is actually what a necropolis looked like. Here's another one full intact from another area, gigantic structures, areas to sit, places to live. So here's what happened. When the city gets destroyed by that earthquake in AD 70, 17, rather, the people move out of their city that's been destroyed, and they move into the graveyard. And they're living in the graveyard for years, pretending they're still alive and have a vibrant city, even though the city is dead. That's why Jesus is so brilliant here when he uses this phrase to a place in Sardis. He says, you pretend to be alive, but you're actually dead. And he's talking to a group of people who've been living in the graveyard for years. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B. 
It says, be watchful. Be watchful. Now, being watchful is very key because in Sardis, this particular area of Sardis got conquered. If you look at this mountaintop in Sardis, there used to be a fortress up there. Now, it didn't look like that. That's just a fortress I found. But there was a fortress at the top that's job was to guard that area of the country from attack. However, it got conquered. Check your study Bible. When did it get conquered and by who? Uh, let's see. Oh, here it is. Um, in 500 B.C. by Cyrus the Persian. And then in 200 B.C. by uh, Antiochus uh, the Greek. Antiochus, yes. Antiochus of the Greek. So twice the city of Sardis got conquered. Once in 500 B.C. by Cyrus. The other time by Antiochus the Greek in 200. Now, do you know how they were able to conquer them? Uh, I haven't found that yet. Well, here's, here's what it is. This word watchful is so key because the same thing happened twice 300 years apart. The watchman was up there with his helmet on, looking down to make sure and guarding the city. All of a sudden, his helmet falls off one day. Clunk, 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 clunk. The Persians are watching, and they're like, that guy just dropped his helmet. And they watch, and pretty soon his head disappears, and they find him walking out along the ground. He puts his hat back on, and they find him pop back up at the top. And they realize there must be a secret passage, a back way in. And because this watcher wasn't being watchful, the Persians that night snuck in the back door and conquered the city in Sardis. 300 years later, in 200 AD, the same thing happened. Obviously, different guards. Same thing. He drops his helmet. The Greeks notice it. There must be a secret passage. They conquered the place. And Jesus, in a city known for not having very good watchers, says, are you watching your life in such a way that you will one day be held accountable for God? Are you living in such a way that you're watching to a city that had consequences for not watching? Exhibit C. Exhibit C says there are some living in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, meaning they have not given in to the culture. Now, garments would have been important for several reasons. This is the Roman road. This is the center of commerce in that area of the country. These are little shops. Shop here, shop here, shop here. Now keep in mind, the emperor was now demanding worship. He had set himself up as the god of gods. You could not do commerce or work if you claimed to be a follower of anything but the emperor. Now, that meant for you to acknowledge that you were a follower of Jesus or a follower of the God of the Old Testament was a big deal during that time because you could suffer death. And yet what he's saying here is that some of you have decided not to give in to this immorality. You've decided not to give in to this different definition of right and wrong. The Greeks had a caste system that said some people were important, some people were not. The slaves weren't important, the handicapped weren't important, the certain races weren't important. But the Christians said, we teach that God loves everyone. We teach that God is tolerant toward all, that God wants all to come to know him. But would they identify themselves as followers of God in this culture? Well, here's a photograph of one of the shops. This is the shop of a dye maker, which is one of the reasons Jesus uses the concept of dyeing garments. Right behind this white rock was an area of dye. The Jews were known for being great at dyeing clothes. They would put their garments in, pull them out to dye them a new color. This particular shop owner decided to identify himself. Look real closely at the photograph. Well, let the audience look as well. Do you see anything hidden in the white rock? I mean, maybe a cross? Well, we'll put a little spectral analysis on the photograph. And sure enough, it becomes clear this guy identified himself as a follower of Christ in a culture that could have had him beheaded because of it. Now, if you go down a few shops later, you find this symbol. Can you look at that or let the audience look as well? What do you see hidden in the rock? This one's a little harder, but maybe a menorah? 
a menorah. Look real carefully. We'll zoom in on it. A menorah. So here's someone who acknowledged they were a follower of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the Bible and saying, I am a follower of Jesus and a follower of the Jewish way in the midst of a culture who could be headed from it. We are going to have our marriage about partnership, not about domination. We're going to care for people and offer food to those, whether they're low in the caste system or high in the caste system. Let me give you an example of how they would do it. Come on, Watson. Yep. You would take uh, a garment, and you would take a garment, and you would dip it into a bin like this, usually made out of rock. But the problem was, he said, you've allowed the values of the culture to contaminate your value system, contaminate the church. More than that, you're not living out my way of goodness and joy and peace. You've instead allowed the culture to defile you. You don't live in faithfulness the way I define faithfulness. You're not walking in marriage the way I described marriage could work. But, he says, the good news is, despite defiling yourself, I can offer forgiveness. Jesus offers something powerful. He says that in the same way you would dip your clothes into the water to be dyed, I will dip you into my forgiveness, into my love, into my mercy, and I can cleanse you. In fact, that's exactly why, after he describes this idea uh, to them about defiling the garments, the next thing he says is you can walk in white garments. Let me show you. Okay. Exhibit D. Exhibit D says, for those who overcome, you can be clothed in white garments. Now, the color white would be very significant in Sardis. This is a temple to the emperor. There's a 20 to 30 foot statue of the emperor you had to bow down to every day when you came to the gymnasium. The gymnasium was a combination of a school and a education combined, like a university. Everyone worked out in the university naked, men, women, children. This was the Greek school. It used to be all white. Right now, the archaeologists are putting the white marble back up. You had to bow down before the emperor and participate in the gymnasium. The Jews and Christ followers decided to build a synagogue right next door to this temple in Sardis. And notice what color they used for the rock. That's white also. All white marble. More than that, they had a fountain at the front entrance. In this fountain, they offered a drink to anyone. You see, you weren't allowed to offer a drink to somebody lower in the caste system. Everyone was welcome to come and have their needs met. It was a new value system the synagogue was offering. And in the middle of that synagogue, one of the largest ones ever found... It's actually a table where you would read from the Bible, saying the Bible is going to be the focal point of how we make decisions. And so when Jesus says to a city that has two types of white, the white of the Greek culture and its value systems, and the white of the Bible and its culture, it's very key here to say, which way will you live your life? Because as my children, if you will live according to my garments, I will reward you by confessing you before my Father. Or you can defile yourself before the Greek culture. Let's go back. And in the same way that we can pour a chemical into the water and remove stains, in the same way, Jesus says, he has some kind of mercy and love to remove the stains in our life as well. That whatever you've done, no matter where you've been, and what defilement you've been part of, God says he can forgive you. Now, do you know why this chemical is able to do that? Oh, it's just basic science, Chad. Uh, You put in sodium percarbonate, which is a great detergent and bleaching agent, given the chemistry of hydrogen peroxide bound with carbonate molecules. Uh, the sodium goes in, grabs the stain, and pulls it right out, leaving the garment good as new. I was just going to say it was oxyclean, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much that's how it works. So imagine living in a culture that has a value system and temptations totally antithesis to what you believe or what you hold or what you found to be right. Now, how do you help your kids in the midst of those temptations? And how does God parent you to stay strong in the midst of opposition? 
That's what we're going to look at today. This next song is by Eric Clapton, and it's called I'm So Tired, trying to align myself and align my kids in the midst of the temptations in life. That's why we're calling today's case the case of the perplexed parents. Let's listen. So again, we talked about three steps. The first one is observation. You make observations about the text. The next one is interpretation. Now, we give you some tools to make these kind of observations so you can do it at home. One is a website called blueletterbible.org. In that case, you can type in the verse of the Bible. I typed in Revelation 3.1. Some tools come up. There's different commentaries. Over on the left are different MP3s of people speaking about that passage. On the right are different sermon notes of people talking about what's going on there, some of the details. That's some of the ways we help figure out what's going on in the text. Now, I'm doing this in Revelation to say, if we can do the hard book, imagine how easy the easy books are. We also talked about two resources, one of which Peter had, which was a study Bible. If you've never had a study Bible before, this is the New King James Study Bible. It always has notes at the bottom, like Watson was reading, of different facts or observations you can make to understand what's going on. We also talked about a book. Apparently they sold out last hour, so you can order this online. We'll have more next week. And it's called How to Study the Bible and Really Enjoy It by Skip Heitzig. If you want to write that down and order that as well. Now we move to interpretation. Now what we want to do is say, okay, that's what it meant to them. What does it mean to me? We're going to move from their town with Artemis and emperor worship and things being conquered and and emperors and people running around the gymnasium naked and kids. What in the world does that have to do with us? How do we move from their town to our town? We're looking for a bridge, a principle that applied to them that also applies to us. That's what we're trying to discover. So let me show you how I do that. Then you can say, when's the series going to be over? I want to get back to the good stuff. We're going to get to what a typical message would sound like in about a minute. I'm just showing you how we get to the place of studying the Bible to begin to show how it applies. In this case, I looked at the Bible. Next slide. And in here it says, you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. If you don't watch, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Now, a few of you living in Sardis have not defiled your garments. But if you overcome, if you will keep on in the midst of this culture, you'll be clothed in white garments. And I will confess you those who overcome before my Father. So here's my interpretive principle that would apply to them and would apply to us. Jesus wants to tell our Heavenly Father that we, as His children, have lived purely in the midst of a corrupt culture in hopes of being rewarded at His return because we love Him. So that's the principle that would then become the basis for the message today where we talk about parenting. The way I'm going to say it for application is this. In a culture that bounces around from one idea to another, in a culture that breaks down under pressure, in a, a culture that allows people to give in, God's trying to develop children, hearts, and minds that will instead bounce back when difficult happens, break through obstacles, and not give in to adversity. So in the midst of a culture that causes people to bounce around and break down and give in, He's trying to develop those that instead will break through, will bounce back, and not give in. And if we can model this for our kids, for our grandkids, and we can let God develop this in our life, we can face adversity because we will be overcomers. It will be something real and genuine, not something fake. But there's three detours mentioned here in the text that will keep us from being those kind of people. Now look at this photograph behind me. Go back to the photograph. The photograph behind me, notice the barn-looking thing. That barn is the synagogue. Just to the right and above it is the marble court where the emperor was. 
Now, this is either a synagogue that had already fully um, compromised and become part of the Roman culture, or it's an incredibly bold church who decided to build a synagogue right next door to the gymnasium the Greeks had established to say, you have your value system, we have ours. Let's teach them both and see who wins. They were trying to develop children and grandchildren with a totally different value system in the midst of the Greeks and Romans. So detour number one. How we get off track to do this is when we allow let it being real to trump being real. When being real, R-E-E-L, putting on a show, becomes more important than being real and genuine, that's the first detour. Why is that? And maybe you don't do this, but I know I do it. You know, I'll be mad at my kids. I'll be saying, you know, I can't, I'll be yelling at them about stuff. I can't believe you didn't do this. Okay, I'm using my temper and my phone rings. I can't believe you did that. I told you really quick. Hello, it's Chad speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they've learned that you act one way in one environment, another way in another. And sometimes I had to catch myself, say, guys, I'm sorry. I'm talking to a stranger, a telemarketer of all things, nicer than I'm talking to you. I need to apologize. But often we begin to create a culture where we, we model for our kids that we act one way when we're at church and another way when we're at home. And it doesn't become real. It becomes a show. You learn how to put on a show in the right places. And it's not genuine. And that's exactly what was going on here in Sardis. Their city had been destroyed by an earthquake. And he says, you have a name you're putting on a show. You have a name that you're alive. People say, oh, man, have you been to Sardis? Happen in place. But I know you're dead. You're living in the graveyard. I know what goes on behind the scenes. And that's the thing about parenting. Our kids get to see us when we're at our worst. And the question is, when we're at our worst, do we apologize for what we say? When we're at our worst, do we say, just like I tell you to respect me, I try and respect you. There's a moral standard that I fall short of, and I too need to realign myself to it. See, that's the kind of genuine conversations... Because our kids see our dead spots. You think, I think if God was talking to Sardis in today's language, he might look at them living in their graveyard and he'd say, I see dead people. From Sixth Sense. He says, you're not fooling me. And maybe us come in here today and we look good, we look pretty, we, we got our kids off of the children's ministry and, and we look like our marriage is fine, but God looks past the veneer of the real of our life. And he says, I see some dead spots. I see some loneliness in your marriage. I see some self-centeredness that you're not dealing with. I see some lack of joy and peace. I see you going through the motions of going to church, but you don't really feel spiritually connected to me. And I'm not here to chastise you as much as to invite you into something deeper than just putting on a show. Something real that you can model and model for your kids as well. Remember a guy on stage, a friend of mine, comes to our church. He... Um, was kind of a skeptic, but really didn't have a strong opinion about religion. But there's a televangelist living in his neighborhood, sort of a local televangelist, but was making a killing. And he came into a shop one day to buy a six-figure motorboat that he was selling. And as he's talking to the guy, he says, wow, it's a pretty expensive boat for a pastor. He goes, ah, don't worry, I'll just wring some more money out of those folks on TV. And just was so put off. I don't even know what you believe, but that kind of disdain, that kind of manipulation just turned him off to Christianity. And many folks never come to wrestle with the Bible or Jesus and his claims because the Christians that they've met put such a bad taste in your mouth. You're like, I don't, even if it is true, I don't want it, right? The real, the hypocrisy, 
And when we model for our kids and for our culture something that's real, it's attractive. I remember we had a family meeting a few weeks ago as we were talking about just a few things to work on, some goals we had as a family, some things each of us wanted to do better. My daughter said to me, she said, I've noticed something, Dad. I said, what's that? She said, whenever we're talking about things to work on, you always mention the things that we're not doing well and something you do do well. I thought, man, I, in a moment, I thought, that can't be true. I mean, I feel like I'm very genuine in sharing my, my struggles and my mistakes. And I went, well, it must be true. She said it, and she, it was very kind-hearted. I went, you know, I am so sorry. I think in my desire to help everyone do better, I've tried to be in teacher mode and not in authentic mode. And so I've worked really hard over the last month since she said that to purposely give bad examples. Let me tell you, this is so important because here's where I screwed up and here's where I made a mistake and here's why I don't do this well. And I find the influence I have with my kids when I talk about my weaknesses and my mistakes is so much better. And I didn't even know that I was doing it. We got a chance to take my daughter to Alaska. She just graduated from high school. And much of Alaska is a rainforest. I didn't know that. And so we come to this rainforest, and when a tree falls down, they leave it there because there's so little topsoil in Alaska because about three feet down is this giant rock layer. And so the roots can't go very deep. So when a tree falls, it becomes what's called a nursing tree. Other trees will begin to grow in it and out of it, and it becomes their soil. Here's one of the nursing trees we saw. This tree you see on the right is actually sucking its nutrients out of the the trunk of an old tree. And that's a great thing for a while, but eventually you begin to eat up all your nutrients to the point at which years later that tree will be standing there like legs with nothing to stand on because there's no roots into the ground. Look at that. Do you think that tree is going to withstand the winds and the rains of time? No. Because it didn't grow its own roots. It built off the roots of another And many of us haven't really looked into why we believe what we believe. Our parents had a great faith. Maybe our grandparents had a great faith. It was rooted. And so we just sort of coasted on that for a while. I'll get into heaven. I think I believe in Jesus. But then when the winds of doubt come and the winds of fear come, we find out we didn't have our own foundation. We were just nursing off of our parents' faith or our grandparents' faith. So the challenge for us as God is parenting us is have you rooted yourself in being real? See, that tree appears to be alive, but it's functionally dead or at least weak. It's not going to take much to knock it over. God says, I see the same thing in you. You're pretending that you're vibrant and alive, but you haven't really rooted yourself in a way that's going to sustain the opposition of the culture you're living in today. You see, God's trying to develop children who will bounce back when adversity hits, who won't give in. And you cannot do that without roots. Where we teach our kids and we model for our kids. When you make, it's not pornography is bad. Yes, it is. But when you give in to pornography, which you probably will, what does it look like to seek forgiveness and to realign your thinking in your life? What does it look like? Yes, should you obey? Yes. What do you do when you don't obey? We begin to teach the real relationships. What do you do when two people in a family disagree? How do you disagree in a respectful way? We begin to teach what looks real, not just empty platitudes. So that's our first detour. Our second deep tour is when we exchange being neglectful for being watchful. And we'll go back to the text here. It says, be watchful. Now keep in mind, this is a culture that has twice been conquered because they weren't watchful. So they're me like, oh, be watchful. We know what happens when you're not watchful. Be watchful and do what? Strengthen the things that remain. 
You're not all dead, but you've got a lot of dead spots. You've got to go back and strengthen some things. Strengthen your faith. Get back to basics that are ready to die. You've got some aspects of your soul, of your character, of your decisions that are just withering on the vine. You've got to strengthen those things. For I have not found your works perfect. You're not living out what you say you're living out. You're not living out what you say you believe. You need to remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Remember forgiveness. Remember that I want the best for you. Remember that what I'm sharing and guiding you in is for your good. But don't just remember. Hold fast to those things that you've heard and repent. The word repent means to change your thinking. Instead of thinking that what the culture offers with temptation or sensuality will bring happiness... I want you to believe, as hard as it is, that faithfulness and purity really matters. That losing your temper and powering up is the way to go. I want you to repent and remember that a gentle word turns away wrath. Be quick to listen. Slow to anger. I want you to believe and live that out. But if you don't, if you don't watch, I'm going to come as a thief. Now let me tell you, in their town, he's specifically talking about Jesus' second return. Christians believe that Jesus will one day come back to earth, literally and physically. I know some of you are like, oh, please. Chad, you don't believe that, do you? Actually, I do. But you might have that in the same category as like alien abduction. Jesus is coming back, you know. And he's coming back to earth. That is so weird. This is why I don't believe in the Bible. So if that's too hard for you to accept, that's his primary application here. Let me give you one that might, in the same context, might be easier for you in your stage of, of belief. He's saying when Jesus comes back, you're going to be held accountable for how you live. You might say, well, I don't believe Jesus is coming back. Well, don't you believe that life is, is short? Don't we have people at any moment you go, boy, they shouldn't have died so young. I can't believe that happened, right? Life is fleeting. If you died today and you stood before God and were held accountable for what you're doing right now in this season of life, wouldn't you be more watchful about how you're living? What you're investing in, what you're prioritizing, it's the same thing. He's saying Jesus could return any moment and you need to know you're going to be held accountable for how you lived. If that's too weird for you, just say if you died at any moment, are you watchful of your life and how you're living your life? I remember this is a culture that was known for having watchmen who didn't watch. And when they didn't watch, the culture came in and took them over. A totally different culture. If we're not watching our kids their technology, their boundaries, they're watching our relationship with them. We have a tendency to drift away from the things we say are so important if we're not watchful. And sometimes it's like, oh, the culture is just going so fast. It's so strong. They have so many hours compared to what I have to input in my kid's life. I just, it's, I'm tired, to use Eric Clapton's words. I'm tired of trying. It's just hopeless. And we choose being neglectful over being hope, watchful. But sometimes we do that in our own soul. I mean, how watchful are you on your soul, building into yourself, connecting with God on a deep, meaningful level? I'm often so distracted by other good things or fun things that I neglect my soul. I don't think about the idea of being held accountable to God. I had a senator friend of mine, or congressman rather, he, when he got his first term, he had young children. And he thought, if I'm going to serve in Washington, I really need to make sure I'm prioritizing my kids being gone so often. So he kept a journal every month of ways in which he was engaging with his kids and their hearts and calling them and staying involved with them. Because he wanted to look back after his time of service and not feel like 
he should have been engaged. He wanted to have a track record to, to remind himself not to neglect this relationship while he was doing all those important things in Washington, D.C. that get done all the time. But he was being genuine when he said, while I was doing these important things, I didn't want to miss the vital things. And he actually had a journal to keep watch over the things he said that really mattered. And I think that's important because Fortune 500 magazine says that those of us who live in our community, who, live at, who work in executive levels, our kids are particularly susceptible to temptation and to depression. Here's what Fortune 500 said. Why grade A executives get an F as parents observe that children of successful executives are more likely to suffer a range of emotional and health problems than children of less successful parents. For example, an Ann Arbor, Michigan study found that 36% of children of executives undergo treatment for psychiatric or drug abuse each year versus 15% of non-executives in the same companies. Now, that's not a punishment of being successful. That's not a punishment for being an executive. But it does mean that our kids are particularly more susceptible to temptation, to depression than others. So we need to be even more watchful because of the unique temptations of the culture we live in today. Minnesota Hill did a study of four types of parenting. I think it's helpful because there's two things we need to be watchful of. They talked about emotional closeness and structure or discipline. And those parents who are really good at structure and consequences and and putting systems in place uh, for kids, rules and and guidelines as well, and those who built a great relationship, I'm going to call that the love quadrant. Those kids had the best self-image. They mirrored the value system of their parents. And they were the most successful based on the criteria they gave. What's ironic, though, is those who had lots of law, it's right, it's wrong, consequences, they had all that stuff. But no emotional connection. And most of us grew up that way. You know, not most of us, but a lot of us. We had parents or grandparents that told us the right thing to do. But we would say, I don't know my mom. Really. I don't know anything about my dad except he worked and came home. And I got, if I was in trouble, I was in trouble. Those are folks who had really good structure but really bad emotional closeness. What I'm going to call the law. They found that this group over the other three had the most amount of rebellion, poorest self-image, and the least amount of value system being passed from one generation to another, ironically. The third group was those who were lenient. Lots of, I love you, honey. Oh, you know mommy loves you. You know dad loves you. You know you're my buddy. Love, 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 love. Oh, you know what? If you want to come in at 2 in the morning and be drunk on the floor, you know what? Just know you're loved here. Okay. <laughs> I had a buddy of mine who was like this. I talked to him this week. He's in his 40s now. He said he has parents that were very, very lenient. And the insecurity that bred in him because he didn't feel like he was loved enough that his parents would stop him from destroying his life. And the research shows that, that those who grew up in lenient, better to be lenient than to be law based on the research. Now, that's shocking to me. But it's still far more low self-confidence despite the fact you're using a lenient emotional closeness in your parenting. And, of course, the worst is lacking, negligent. There's no structure, there's no involvement, and there's no emotional closeness. So to me, that's so key because as parents, it means we got to, God works on both. He gives us rules and guidelines to say, here's the way to live life. And he says, I want you to love me and I want to love you. God does both as a parent. And he wants us to do the same. Let's watch our emotional connection. Let's watch our structure in our children's lives. And let's know that God is doing the same to us. He's wanting to connect with us on those levels. Because if you don't, 
the consequences of losing a relationship with those you love is like a thief in the night. Remember what he said? He said, if you don't watch, if you don't remember these things, if you don't hold fast, if you don't turn your thinking on these things, you're going to lose it. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be like, oh, why didn't I see this coming? Oh, why didn't I prepare? Why didn't I do something about that? I would do anything to go back and undo what I've done. And yet we're always surprised when a relationship falls apart. And yet almost every time you can watch the slow erosion over time. My family has a, uh, had a cabin up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's not this one, but it looks a lot like it. We went up there as a kid. I remember fishing with my dad. We'd go out the front door and walk about 50 yards and had this old rowboat. And we'd get in the, in the river and we'd go in on the Mississippi River and we'd go fishing and come back. We came back several years later and I walked out the front door and it wasn't 50 yards. It was about 20 yards. I walked out and it's like, whoa, it's only 20 steps to the river now. The erosion of the barges turning the corner at that section was just eating away at the shoreline. About five years ago, my dad and I went to Sturgis, and on the way we went through La Crosse. I said, hey, let's stop by La Crosse and see the old cabin. We came by to see the old cabin. There ain't no cabin there anymore. It's a big hole because the erosion took our cabin, and it's probably down the Gulf of Mexico by now. By the way, that is not my cabin. That's just one like it. And that's what happens when you're not watchful. Slowly over time, the culture and its values begin to eat away and corrode to the point at which you lose something that you treasured. In my family's case, it's because no one was watching it. We just occasionally all used it. Nobody was watching, saying, we've got to put up a retaining wall. Being watchful means some retaining walls. Being watchful means, wow, wow how have I let my friendship with my kids die down? Or why have I never made that a priority along with the structure? I've allowed being neglectful to overcome being watchful. Our third detour and our final one is this. When I allow overprotection to trump developing overcomers. You see, most of us don't want our kids to experience pain, and, and who would? Except if you look at your life, aren't the things you learned the most, aren't the lessons that you learned, the character you developed, didn't you get the most of that through adversity? It was a difficult time in your marriage. It was a challenging time with a medical report. Wasn't it during those challenges you learned to overcome? That's the nature of overcoming, isn't it? You stretch, you push, and you overcome. And yet then we have our own kids who we love and we protect them from overcoming. We protect them from consequences. We, we overprotect them instead of saying, I want to develop overcomers. And then we get mad at God. I know I get mad at God sometimes. I say, God, I want to be... Overcoming is nice, but I'd like to be pampered, actually. And I think God's job is to protect me from the evil things and, and to protect me from discomfort and to protect me from bad stuff. And God says, I'm not developing overprotectors. I'm developing overcomers. You're mad at me because you don't realize what I'm doing. I want you to have the kind of fortitude that you can bounce back when stuff happens. I want the kind of fortitude that you can break through obstacles, that you won't give in because you've had doses of challenges in your life. Oh. And I want you to be clothed in white, that you will walk with me in white. You say, I'm going to trust you, Father. Even though I'd prefer to be pampered, I'm going to trust that you have my best in mind. That you want to make me an overcomer. Because when, when I overcome the culture, when I overcome temptation, I'm going to trust that you have my best at heart. Do you want my best? And he says, now, even if you've defiled yourself, even if you've given in to temptation, let me tell you what kind of God I am. 
And this is so helpful, especially if you're a mom, but even a dad, who defines yourself worth by what a good parent you are. Let me just caution you. You're making your sense of identity dependent upon your children's obedience. Not a good idea. I only know of one perfect parent. No, not me. God. God is the one perfect parent. And did you know that 100% of his kids rebelled? 100% don't live up to his standards of their own. You know what great parents do? They don't have perfect kids. They do what God does. They continue to woo them. They continue to pursue them. They continue to teach them. They continue to wrestle with their hearts. They continue to engage in them. God says, don't create your identity on having perfect kids. Look at me as the perfect God. Look how I work with people who are broken, people who rebel, people who do the wrong thing. And the same way I want to work with you is the same way I want you to work with your children and grandchildren as well. That's the heart of God. He wants to develop overcomers, but he also comes to us when we break down and says, let me work with you, let me help you. That one day you will walk in white, that I will confess you, I will whisper your name to the Father and say, let me tell you about Chad. Let me tell you about Jeff. Oh my goodness, there was so much difficulty. So many reasons they should have given up. So many reasons they they should have said, no way, I can't do it during this time and during this season of this culture and this time of history. There's so many excuses they could have had, but instead they stayed strong in the midst of it. Jesus, I want to confess you before the Father that you stay true. See, at the end of the day, we find ourselves in Sardis. We're all going to clothe our kids, aren't we? You can clothe your kids by overprotecting them, or you can clothe your kids by making them resilient. What are you going to put on your kids? What will they wear? I read a book while I was on vacation. It's my third time reading it. It's called Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud. I've read it three times because every chapter is about something that's wrong with me. In my desire as an overfunctioner, as an overdoer, to overdo it for my kids and to not let them face some of the consequences because it'd be easier or faster for me to do it. And I'm just beginning to look at what that is and why I think God should be an overpamperer as well. And I remember we were on this cruise and my, my parents got a chance to see my daughter up close and personal, how she interacted with kids, how she would open the, the, the elevator door for people while I'm hitting the door close button because I'm a jerk. And I didn't want to wait for people. And my uh, parents just sat down at this pub together with her at, on the cruise and said, Honey, your kindness, your love, your genuineness toward people, it's just so cool to see it up close. I thought, well, God, as broken as I am as a dad, as bad a job as I do, at, I'm good at fun. I'm not so good at overcoming. My daughter's at times of loneliness and difficulty in making friends in a culture where she thinks that purity and, and responsibility and faith is important and it's a lonely time many times many lonely tear-filled conversations and i was just so honored that my parents could build into her the way i built into her and say god at least I'm, you've done something maybe not in light of what i've done but despite what i've done in a culture where people bounce around and break down and give in god wants in you and in me to make us people who can bounce back break through and won't give in I want you to pick one detour. I invite the band to come up. What is one detour that either you need to change in your parenting or maybe God wants to parent you today to begin working on? First one is this. Are you pretending more than you're being real? Have you allowed being real, putting on a show, 
at work, in your marriage, in your friendship, in the community? Is being real more important than being real? And God would say, time to get rid of that detour. I want you to be honest with your doubts with me, your fears, your inconsistencies. I will accept you where you are, but let's start being real together. It's a time for a family meeting where you say, listen, Dad's been a real hypocrite in this area, and and I want to ask your forgiveness. It's powerful. Have you been neglectful of your own soul, your own relationship with God? Have you pretended you're alive, but you're really dead? You haven't been in the Bible in forever, but you remember a time that maybe you used to? It's a time to stop being neglectful of your soul and to be watchful. Or maybe the third one. Maybe you've been really good at overprotecting, but you're not developing overcomers. We're living in a time that continues to be a challenge of temptation. What would it be like to say my primary goal is to form overcomers and to say to God, I wish I was pampered more, but I'm going to trust you to make me into an overcomer. I love this next song. This next song speaks about how God is offering something greater, that God living in you can be greater than the temptations of our culture. God living in you can help you overcome whatever you face. Listen to these words together. Ask God what he might want to do in your life. Well, if you want access to that kind of power, something that's greater in you than that's in the world, I want to lead us in a prayer as we close today. And maybe you just want to ask God for that kind of power. God, we want something in us that will allow us to stand against the challenges of life that we can deposit into our kids as they go into a world that has challenges all around it. Father, we want to deposit faith We want to deposit hope. For each person that's come in the door today, Father, they have challenges in their relationships. Challenges between themselves and you and their kids. And I just ask that you will give them wisdom. You will give them an example. You will give them encouragement and give them warning. As we leave today, Father, we just ask that you will bring us forgiveness. And show us what grace looks like in our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today for Sleuth. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes in the lobby. If uh, you want one of those books, those are available as well. If you uh, would like to meet somebody, you're new to Horizon. Third door on your left is a hearth room. We'd love to put a name to the face. We'll see you next week for Sleuth Part 3. Thanks again.